The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. After this massacre, there was a major concentration camp that was located directly across the street from Babinyar. And the laborers of this camp, in the end of German occupation, were ordered to go to Babinyar, dig up all these human remains and burn them. And th- that's a first, the first time when you see on this specific site this kind of violent attempt to cover up for the war crime. I'm Tyler McBrien, Managing Editor of Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, July 1st, 2022. When a Russian missile recently struck a TV tower in Kyiv near Babin Yar, the site of Nazi mass murders during the Holocaust, some saw the attack as a potent symbol of the tragic occurrence of violence in Ukraine. In her recent New York Times essay, The Bloody Echoes of Babin Yar, Linda Kinsler wrote, The current war in Ukraine is so oversaturated with historical meaning. It is unfolding on soil that has absorbed wave after wave of the dead, where soldiers do not always have to dig trenches in the forest because the old ones remain. To talk through the historical significance of the attack, I sat down with Linda, a PhD candidate in the rhetoric department at UC Berkeley. Linda is also the author of Come to This Court and Cry, How the Holocaust Ends, which is out in the US on August 23rd from Public Affairs. I was also joined by Maxime Rokmanico, an architect, designer, entrepreneur, and director at the Center for Spatial Technologies in Kyiv, Ukraine. We discussed the history of Babin Yar as a site and symbol, the role of open source investigative techniques and forensic modeling in the documentation of war crimes, the battle over historical narratives, memorialization, and memory in achieving justice for victims of negation and genocide. It's the Lawfare Podcast, July 1st, memorializing Babin Yar after the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So I wanted to start our conversation uh, in March of this year when Russia launched a missile strike on a TV tower in Kyiv. You've both written about or investigated this particular strike, even though, as people have pointed out, it's not wasn't the deadliest or or most militarily strategic. Uh, Maxim, I'd love to start with you. Why why investigate this particular attack? What's its significance? Yeah, this is a question to unpack. I have to say I have a strong personal connection to this place. I live in Lukyanevska district of Kyiv, from which you can see the TV tower very well. You can, in fact, see it from my bedroom. And I've lived in that area for most of my life. But also for the two years, starting from the end of 2019, the team that I run 
did an investigation about one of these major Holocaust sites, which is Babiniar, which is basically buried under the territory, which is now called Babiniar, on top of which the TV tower has been constructed. So we've been researching that place using this kind of forensic architecture type of tools, reconstructing the terrain digitally, mapping the events, and we know that place really well. So when the first missiles landed on cave on the 24th of February, our team was kind of ready to, to do this work. We didn't even have a discussion about kind of mapping these events, collecting evidence and stuff like that. In fact, we were immediately on mirror board, which is a tool for like digital mapping, trying to understand from which directions this missile came, missiles came and, you know, basically trying to, as in as much of a detail of, as possible, understand what's going on. And that was kind of a chaotic process. We couldn't, basically, we couldn't decide what will be our first investigation until these two missiles landed very near to the, the territory that we studied for two years. So once I saw that bodies right next to Babinyar, the missile exploding right next to the TV tower, which I can see from my window, it kind of, it was so close to home that it couldn't be anything else than this case as, as the first investigation in this series that we, we launched. As you uh, unpacked things, there are many more things there to unpack further. But first, Linda, I wanted to ask you the same question. For you, why write about this particular attack yeah, I mean, I think when I saw that the missiles had, you know, landed at that particular area of Kiev, it just struck me, you know, I think from the American perspective, especially kind of in the early days of this full-scale invasion, you know, people were really grasping to understand exactly what was going on, why it was happening now, what was actually unfolding unfolding upon the territory of Kiev. And, you know, that particular territory, I had been going there for many years because it is also the site of Babinyar, which, you know, was the largest um, massacre of Jews to take place during World War II was like kind of the starting spot of what is called the Holocaust by bullets. And so I had been very familiar with that place because of its immense historical meaning. And, you know, I had been speaking to a lot of colleagues and friends as the kind of war was unleashed, trying to explain the full gravity and perversity of the logic behind it. And, you know, when I saw that strike upon Babinyar, I thought, well, this is exposing everything that is being lost in real time in Ukraine. You know, not just, it's the site that carries so much meaning for contemporary Ukraine, for contemporary Europe, um, for how we think about I don't know, European life in the present and also its, its relation to the past and in the way that this war is being framed unjustly as this kind of, you know, attempt, as Vladimir Putin said, to denazify Ukraine. It just seemed to me to be this 
most ironic, most perverse, most kind of straightforward illustration of the ways that history can be manipulated in the present. And so that's why I thought it was most important to kind of focus on this one strike, at least to begin to explain what's happening. Absolutely. Linda, you began to sort of set the scene, I think, for some of our listeners who may not be as familiar with Babinyar. Maxim, what does Babinyar mean to you as you understand it as a site and a symbol for Ukraine? And, and maybe also, when did you first learn about the site, if you can remember? And, and what's your sort of personal connection to it? Right. That's an interesting question. I have to say, I, I probably won't be able to remember the first time I heard about it, just because, as I said, I live so close to it. So since early days, you, you hear about Babinyar and you know what it is. Uh, one issue that we were working with is the lack of specificity in that knowledge and in, in the collective knowledge, because as I said, that the site is buried uh, under the layers of kind of Soviet terraforming. The site now doesn't look anything like it was in 1940s. And the work that we were doing was kind of partly directed towards reconstructing that place and understanding how exactly it was. But um, I, I can respond to what it generally means to many people. And, you know, like Bhavanyar is the site of, it's one of the most important events in the history of the Holocaust. As Linda said, it's, one, it's the biggest at its time massacre where each person was killed uh, by a bullet. It's, it's this chapter of the Holocaust which precedes uh, the history that people on the West particularly knows really well, know really well, which is this history of you know gas chambers and concentration camps. But it's it's a really important chapter in the, the in the way they were prototyping these technologies of violence. Only in the course of two days in September twenty uh, ninth and thirtieth of September nineteen forty one. There's over 33 Southern Jews who are killed at this site. And that that particular massacre is very well documented. We know a lot about it. We have a lot of witness testimonies uh, from all sides. We have images. So we, we understand that particular event really well. But Benyar is also a site of murder of many other people than Jews. So it was the site that Germans systematically used to bring people, either already dead people or people who were shot. And it's a vast territory. It's a vast landscape of ravines that spur through the landscape and kind of continue towards the Dnieper River. And, and more or less all of this territory was in one or, or another way weaponized as this site, as this mass grave. So... Yes, that, that, that's the meaning of, of this site for, again, if, if you read Wikipedia pages and, and historic research. I have to say that for me personally, it was something a bit more like a project because, you know, we were involved so, so much into this endeavor to memorialize Babinyar, which is something that arguably has not been properly done even, even before this war started. So um, we worked on the commission of Babinyar Holocaust Memorial Center. 
which is again this endeavor along with you know groups groups of histori- historians and uh, other other endeavors to to memorialize this site and our work particularly was directed towards spatial awareness of how exactly this place looked before uh, before of our work there were many theories uh, about where the mass shooting took place there were controversies one of the major historians of of this event kind of had a th- like an alternative theory of where this place was so we basically did um, reconstruction of the territory in order to understand where exactly the these mass shootings happened and yeah, to better to better understand this this place yeah and if i can just add that you know something to understand about Babinyar is that it's this place that is completely saturated with historical meaning, with contemporary resonance. And as Maxime was describing, there have been, it's this place that's been erased and destroyed and built upon many, many times. And there were previous memorial efforts and every time a new memorial went up, it reflected something about the state that Ukraine was in at the time. Whether you look at the kind of gargantuan Soviet memorial that is erected there and what it and is still to this day what a lot of people think of when they visualize Babinyar, or if you look at the smaller memorials that were erected on the site after the fall of the Soviet Union, you know, you kind of it's this eerie place that is now you know, a kind of placid recreational park with apartment buildings on either side and a metro station deep underground, which of course was used as a bomb shelter after February 25th. And so it's this, it's this place that you can't escape the meaning, but it's also full, it's a place that is full of contemporary life. And if you, it's a place where you can observe how Ukraine has evolved in narrativizing its own history and thinking through what it is to be a nation. Yeah, that's really interesting. And and I think one thing, Linda, that, that's really struck me about reading your reporting and your writing about Babinyar is, is your use of the word negation and also your reference to the poem, No Monument Stand Over Babinyar. So I was wondering if you could speak to maybe that apparent contradiction there that it's a place that has been memorialized many times and yet there is still a negation of what happened or, or cover-up. Um, if you could speak to some of that negation first by the Nazis themselves and then by the Soviets and and maybe its continuation today. Yeah, I mean I think first of all the idea of thinking about genocide as a crime of negation is one that has been espoused by many scholars, you know, I draw upon a lot the work of Mark Nichanian, who's a literary scholar who studied the Armenian genocide. And he looked at how, you know, the event itself was documented and there were efforts to hold the perpetrators to account. But then the records of the efforts to hold these people to account were themselves burned. And so it's this kind of recursive erasure, not only of the crime itself, which erases human life, but also the records of what took place, where it was, if there were any attempts at justice, that kind of thing. Um, And of course, Jean-Francois Lyotard has also wrote about this. 
And I think that for me, it really helps contextualize how much is lost and what is at stake. And especially as we think about memorializing or kind of pursuing tribunals. But to answer your question, basically, after the Soviets retook Kiev, they did document what had occurred at Babinyar. They did, you know, there were survivors, there were prisoners of war, there were kind of local civilians who knew and had observed what had occurred there. So, you know, there were American and Western journalists who were brought to the site and told in English through a translator what had transpired. There were photographs taken, which Maxime has used in his work. And then, you know, after this kind of initial period of recording, there was this real suspicion of any attempt to think about the specificity of the crime in how it was directed against the Jews of Ukraine and kind of wiped out almost entirely the population there. The Soviets began to think of any kind of demonstration of Jewish collectivity as something that could threaten the greater Soviet project. And I think something to understand is like, of course, you know, as we know from many of his, the historians of the Soviet period, there were different moments when the government tried to support minority languages and tried to kind of celebrate the diversity of the Soviet Union. And then there were other times when they dramatically submerged them. Um, and this was one of those times. And so then you get not only the banning of any local efforts to you know, pray for, memorialize, stand over the graves of those who had died, um, even though, of course, they didn't know exactly where the graves were. But you also have the physical destruction of the site. Um, and Maxime can talk more about that. But, you know, there was this infrastructure that was built over the territory, which is quite large, and this kind of flattening. And, you know, it's kind of rare that you can trace erasure in motion. So it was a real kind of physical inst instance of the gravity of the crime, I guess. Sure. And I think that's a good place to sort of fast forward in time to when, Maxim, you became involved in investigating or, or rather almost digitally, spatially excavating the site. How did you become involved in, in this investigation in your organization? Uh, and what have you found? Yeah, that's a great question. We were basically commissioned by BYHMC, Babinier Holocaust Memorial Center, to 3D model the terrain of Babinier first in this very kind of simple, almost technical operation where you have very old topographic maps from the beginning of the century. And by digitizing them and by, by doing certain manipulations to them, you would get the 3D terrain. And since, since that small commission, every step of our work added new dimension to this model. So first, we just had a 3D dimension, the model of the site as it was in 1924. Then we added a bit more details to see how this terrain was changing. Then we started to find photographs from this place and searching for these distinguishing elements of the terrain that we could pinpoint on photographs. And that really helped us to understand this terrain better and to understand where these events took place. 
We also worked with early images, which reveal a lot about this territory, how it was used. Then we also did this kind of extra layer of, of research where we collected all witness testimonies about Babinyar and we posted them, we processed them in a way where we basically were able to spot locations in what people mention and to connect them to specific key key spots, such that if you would, let's say, look up uh, an undressing spot, you would you would hear all of the story of all the witnesses about what exactly happened at this at this location. So we were building this multi-dimensional model, which was increasingly filled with information, not only three D stuff, but you know all kinds of evidence about that particular event, and connected together the, those pieces of media were were helping us to understand the events at Babinyar better. So that that's how we started that process and how it evolved uh, through time. We actually haven't finished that process and we were still involved in this work right before the war. On, on what Linda just said about negation, we also went further to study that. So after this massacre, there was a major concentration camp that was located directly across the street from Babinyar. It had both male and female sections, and the laborers of this camp in the end of German occupation of Kiev were ordered to go to Babinyar, dig up all these human remains and burn them, which is an extremely laborious operation that took over a month. And there's, again, a lot of evidence about that so th- that's a first the first time when you see on this specific site this kind of violent attempt to cover up for the war crime and indeed as linda said you can we know that directly after the war there were journalists there was an attempt to investigate this there were there was a treatment of this site in the beginning arguably which which the site deserves because there was also an design competition for the memorial directly. And it wasn't immediately that Soviet Union decided that this is an inconvenient story for them to address uh, these national kinds of questions that arose here. And yeah, then basically we'll, the, the last chapter of our research was focused on this shift towards this idea that actually this story is not very kind of positive. The city needs to grow and these ravines are on the way of the city growth. This this is kind of the language that the witnesses that we interviewed or read their their testimonies said. And, you know, that chapter is basically about this whole territory being terraformed with kind of building these soil dams and filling, filling the ravines with liquid soil which came as a byproduct of a brick factory nearby. So we studied that chapter as well. And, you know, I mean, it's you, you would imagine that there's no uh, kind of like, uh, not any more room for horrible things to happen here. But of course, when, when Soviets tried to fill the ravines with this liquid mud, one of the dams broke through and, you know, destroyed basically the whole area uh, downstream from, from Babinyar, which is known in, in history of Kiev as a Kuranivska mudslide. 
so this story um, in these three chapters of, of uh, you know the the events of the occupation themselves, the concentration camps and the attempt to cover up for the war crimes and the erasure of Bobinyar, those three chapters were the main kinds of territories where, where we conducted our research. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. And Linda, correct me if I'm wrong, but around this time, I believe you began reporting on on the efforts to build a, a, a memorial and to memorialize the site. How did you become involved in, or interested in rather, Babinyar, and and maybe how did you first interact with with Maxim and and his work? Yeah, well, I um, don't remember it was the first time that I went to Babinyar. It must have been like 2014, about when I kind of first going started going to Ukraine more regularly. But I had all I you know I had also always known about the site. Uh, my mother's family is from Ukraine, and so I always knew that we had lost some members of the family there. And so, for, you know, first I wanted to go see it just because it was part of this family history. And then I started getting interested in what was going on there right now, particularly in this kind of post Maidan movement. Um, there were, you know, in the beginning of the BYHMC, where they were really thinking seriously about what should be there, how it should be honored, and also how it should coexist with the life that has, you know, had sprung up around it in part because of what the Soviets had built there, right? So every time you go to Babinyar, you you walk right by the TV tower, you walk by right by the TV station, um, which is where you know, journalists were actively working and, you know, there it was kind of part of the fabric of the city. And so that's how I kind of started getting interested in, you know, how you think through this history in this new chapter for Ukraine, where it was, you know, trying to become um, what it is now, which is a candidate member of the European Union and what that would mean for its relation to its own history. And, I, you know, had the great pleasure of meeting Maxim in Kiev when I was last there in September to kind of report on the grand unveiling of many, many years of work by the foundation, you know, with different people at its helm to actually make this a place with what they thought would be, you know, a fitting series of memorials and like, you know, different museums such that you couldn't you couldn't navigate the space without being aware of what would happen. 
And I do think they were successful in that in some ways, even though, of course, there's like very many critiques that you could levy against what was built there. You know, I think one of the things that's interesting about Babinyar is and why that poem by Evgeny Yevtushenko keeps coming up, right? No monument stands over Babinyar is because it kind of has remained somehow correct in different ways in the many decades since it was written, you know, when it was released first, of course, it was banned. And then as more memorials came up, you know, each memorial was dedicated to a different group of people. And it didn't, you know, it didn't unify the crimes that had occurred there or really contextualize them. And I think that's what Maxime was helping to work on in thinking through like, okay, first we need to ensure that people understand what happened there. And they think, you know, part of what's interesting if you think about this war is that so much is unknown and it takes so many decades because there are these crimes of negation that deliberately try to obstruct truth. And so Maxime's work is kind of an effort to fill in those gaps, which I think is extremely valuable. And of course, the Yevtushenko poem now, it's like absolutely chilling to think about because it literally interrupted one of the biggest memorial efforts at this site, which up to that point really hadn't been adequately considered, you know, of course, by historians it had been, but not certainly not by the general public. Mm. I definitely want to get into soon how the invasion in particular and, and and the war has imbued the site with with renewed significance. But first, Maxim, I'm I'm curious, you know, how your investigation or how you continued your investigation and how it shifted after the invasion. Yeah, I mean it's a, it's a difficult question because in a way, I mean that shift is almost subconscious. You know, we were still in cave when the first missiles started to land and there was just is the sense that there is nothing else we can do. We were just mapping and trying to understand things to the degree at which we could. We've developed a lot of tools uh, during the work on Babanyar that we could now use to structure information about these attacks now and to better understand them. So the repertoire of of tools that we used for Babanyar, which include maps, you know, like understanding. Uh, the topography that 3D connected with 2D images, working with witness testimonies, all of that is is highly useful for us now. In a way, the, the work that we, we, we work on now is still very much kind of trying to find shape because we're moving from this kind of academic research where we had no incentive and no need to communicate about our research because it was done on a commission of this foundation that also had a massive infrastructure to tell the stories about this and to kind of work with media outlets. Uh, one one complicated aspect uh, for us now is that we have to also find a way to, to tell these stories about our investigations. And this is something that we're trying to figure out. But on the other hand, the very nature of the work and the, the type of research that we do, uh, which looks at this very specific locations and basically kind of through them tries to see the history of that place and the entanglement of forces that 
actually historically, you know, oftentimes explain the war now, you know, uh, and and then though those those investigations fast forward to this very small fragment of time when a missile lands to the side or it destroys a building, and, and that specific specific moment we also try to analyze it in as high of resolution as possible. So identifying weapons, trying to understand who was in that site before the before the explosion, you know, trying to understand what time that attack took place, and so on. Yeah, and if I can add, basically what happened was, you know, Maxim and I met because I was reporting on his work and the work of the BYHMC more broadly, but then you know, obviously we were talking and I happen to have studied with forensic architecture um, and have a degree from their master's program and, you know, had spent a year kind of immersing myself in the stakes and goals of this new way of kind of treating evidence, generating evidence, dealing with kind of digital instances of crimes. Um, And FA, Forensic Architecture, does produce these kind of really robust investigations, which are all available on their website, and then works with, works to submit them to courts for evidence. And so I had gone from there and then really started to think about, you know, okay, standards of proof that are used in international criminal proceedings, both historically and in the present. And so once this kind of invasion became what it is now, that's when we kind of revisited this question of the missile strike and started kind of thinking through, okay, how do you present it now that everything has changed? Yeah, I mean, I probably uh, should have should have mentioned the FA, FA stuff before, but I mean, that's, I mean, it's important to say that the tools that we used um, for Bob and Yar investigation was in a big way informed by the work of forensic architecture. And I've kind of always been aware of their work and I've met many of their collaborators. And, you know, for Bob and Yar, when we were quite deep in the research process, I had a first call when we basically asked for a crit uh, from A.L. Weissman, who's the director of forensic architecture. So... We knew each other uh, through the Babinyar research that we did. And I think Eyal was quite happy to see tools of forensic architecture kind of modified and, and kind of supplied with some kind of weirder touch from our side and also applied to historic material, applied also in a completely different unexpected geography for, for, for them. So, I mean... It was fun, I guess, for them to see that someone in Ukraine is taking up their tools and working on the, on Babinyar with this. But then, of course, when the first missiles landed in Kiev, and we were actually evacuating from from Kiev on the twenty fifth of February, and that is the moment where I got a text message from Eyal, who was asking if there's anything, and if there's anything, any help that we would need. And from that quick call, uh, we basically, you know, kind of step-by-step established a collaboration that is a framework in which we do these investigations now as well. So the the work on um, 
these sites that we, we look at in quite a lot of detail is done in collaboration with forensic architecture. And they also kindly host us in their office here in Berlin. So I understand that you just released your first sort of inaugural investigation in this collaboration. Could you tell me a bit about what's next with this collaboration? Um, you know, what, what future investigations you have planned? And then perhaps a bit about what your goal is with this. Is it, is it collecting evidence for, for war crimes tribunals or, or is it something farther reaching or, or longer term? I mean, as I said, the work is somehow still developing and we, we're kind of modifying the, the results of these investigations as soon as we publish them. There are some things that we want to add and so on. There are three major directions that we are focusing on right now. The first one being something that we already published about, which is the Cave TV Tower strike. But we also want to look a bit deeper into the general nature of war over telecommunication networks. And this is something that seems quite important for the war, both in a military sense and in the sense of how people perceive uh, these events. Uh, so, so this thread of trying to understand the war through these bombings of TV towers, communication networks, uh, and even, you know, things like in Mariupol, bringing these massive cars with screens that basically report uh, Russian national TV, things like that, they all come in, in this thread about, about kind of this specific manifestation of information war, which has to do with the infrastructure through which these news are circulating. The second case that we are looking at is Mariupol Theater. And that is uh, the most kind of like uh, typical for forensic architecture uh, investigation where there is one major war crime, which seems to be so outrageous. And it seems like it's clear what happened there, but there's still a lot of work necessary to disprove the claims that Russia have about what exactly happened and to tell what exactly happened in, on that site, how exactly the theater was exploded, who was there, how many people, how were they hoping to get evacuated and so on. So the story about Mariupol theater and it's kind of, um, yeah, basically that is, that is the other topic that we are investigating right now. The third topic that we are currently looking at is has to do with uh, this whole conversation about the wheat crisis and the, the, the breakage of supply chains of export of Ukrainian wheat that also echoes and covers many different uh, kind of like uh, pains that Ukrainians had over centuries. It kind of very strongly echoes the famines that were orchestrated by Soviet Union in the 1930s. And yeah, I mean, that one is also quite straightforward in terms of technically just trying to understand where wheat is produced in Ukraine, what are the supply chains of its export, and basically how the front line cuts through those supply chains, blocks the ports, and what are the implications of that. So these three uh, research kind of directions that we are now working on, that each of them has a twofold aim. And 
One aspect is, as you mentioned, a collection of evidence. So as we know from Babinyar case, it's not only that we will be able to, in as much of detail, gather materials about these kind of like topics. It's also when we put them together and cross-reference them, when we understand where some pictures are taken, when we understand what witness testimonies mean in their testimonies, when they explain how certain space was occupied. When we connect these different pieces of evidence, we can better understand these events and basically produce new knowledge about what exactly happened there. But other than using these 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 materials in judiciary procedures, we also hope to just generally be able to communicate more about what exactly happens in Ukraine. This historic dimension is important to us uh, to look at in in other cases, not just Babinyar. Uh, in these other 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 topics that we are studying, because we have a feeling that it's really important to understand the history of the struggle and the fact that it's not new, it's not it didn't happen overnight. These imperial forces basically can be recognized centuries if you look at each of these locations, irrespectively whether that is Kiev, Mariupol, or Mykolaiv, where the you know the infrastructure for uh, wheat storage was was, was bombed uh, also quite recently so yeah I mean that that is more or less the the, the, the aim the twofold aim and the, the three directions that we're currently working on as we near the end of our conversation Linda I'm curious you know as someone who's thought deeply about memory and negation memorialization how have your thoughts on these themes changed through your reporting on um, the Babinyar Holocaust Memorial Center now through the invasion and and working with or reporting on Maxime's investigations rather in general? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a hard question to answer right now as everything is still ongoing. But, you know, I think what Maxime was saying really illustrates how there are so many things that you can discover through the kind of forensic methodology, right? There are so many things that are occluded that can be revealed. There are negations that you can attempt to reduce or fill in, but of course there's a limit, right? And so I'm always really concerned with thinking about how much we should or could be relying on these methods and when they might lead us astray, And yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting to see right now because even as, you know, cities in Ukraine are still being destroyed, people are still dying and we don't know when this will end or kind of, you know, obviously what the scale of destruction will be that we still have this kind of desire to think about what the memorials will look like. How will we rebuild? What should we rebuild? Um, And I think that what Maxime's work can illustrate is, you know, you know, the networks that enabled this to happen and this kind of, I think one of the ways it can be most impactful is that, you know, it 
kind of brings this deep history to the floor. And one of the challenges, if you're working in this space, is of course we all want to have hope that there will be justice, that there will be tribunals, that there will be trials that will bring people to account. You know, we're already seeing that the Ukrainian prosecutors um, are commencing their own proceedings, you know, as of course are Russian authorities, right? And you need to think about, first of all, okay, those proceedings will be limited in scope. We're unlikely to see, you know, this kind of grand tribunal, although of course there are, you know, hopes and dreams for that. But you also need to think about how do you tell the narrative of this war, right? Where law fails, we look to literature, we look to narrative, we look to media, we look to this kind of consensus about what exactly has unfurled. And so I think that is one of the places where I'm turning now because unfortunately, you know, I have become, (laughs) I guess I would say less faithful in the possibilities of the different juridical systems that are kind of currently operating. But who knows, you know, I could be completely wrong. And I hope that what Maxime is uncovering across Ukraine, specifically, you know, in the three case studies that he just outlined will be extremely helpful to the lawyers that are kind of already working on these cases. But I also think, you know, equally importantly will be how do we think about presenting these to the general public, both domestically in Ukraine and in Russia, and, you know, further than that. So, yeah, we'll see. It's a hard question. Yeah, I think where law fails is actually the perfect place to end this conversation for the Lawfare podcast. <laughs> I um, I want to thank you both so much for for taking the time with with everything going on. Um, we really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you. The Lawfare podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com slash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, and our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th, The Aftermath. Be sure to check out our written work at lawfareblog.com And while you're at it, buy some Lawfare swag at thelawfarestore.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Patia Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Kara Schilling of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening.